Hello, and welcome back to Cartel Aristocrats cast number 102. I'm joined this week, of course, with my co-host, Jim Caselli of GatheringMagic.com and Travis Allen of MTGPrice.com. How are you guys doing this week? I am good. Uh, we took a week off because we couldn't get our stuff together, but I'm ready to <clears throat> talk about some MTG finance stuff. Well, first off, as always, before Travis gets in, we'd like to thank our sponsors, CoolStuffInc.com and GatheringMagic.com, who have partnered with us to give away free $25 gift certificates. In order to win these, please just leave a comment on the latest Gathering Magic episode. With free shipping on orders of $100 or more and a sweet 25% buy list bonus, CoolStuffInc.com is a store for all of your Magic the Gathering needs. Right, Travis? Exactly. And meanwhile, uh, I'm fine, tired. Our puppy is keeping us busy these days. He is finally laying down at the moment, but he's at like 12 weeks, which is apparently where they want to chew absolutely everything. So it requires a lot of attention. I don't know why people have babies. This is <laughs> it's a lot of work, um, but good. And speaking of things that require attention, if you were at GP Vegas this weekend, uh, it was okay. And if you weren't, then I'm sorry for whatever social media you were using as usual, as it seemed like a lot of people went to GP Vegas. I mean, I really wasn't expecting such a big crowd. Um, I think we had all agreed that with SEG con and other stuff going on, there wasn't going to be that many people there and it was absolutely packed. So it was, it was cool to meet the cartel fans as the lone cartel representative that was there. Uh, apparently one of our fans is making all the brainstorm brewery guys sign a foil cartel aristocrat, including Bouchard, Jason, Doug, and Corbin. Uh, I don't think Marcel showed up until late Sunday night. So we appreciate whichever one of our fans is uh, daggering them as I did not even ask them to, to do that. I was told that there was also a guy. Uh, they, I think they just have it in for brainstorm brewery because he approached some uh, MTG finance members and chatted with them and never even acknowledged Jason's presence the whole time. <laughs> just like Jason's sitting there and the guy is like, I'm a huge fan. I've been listening for years since you guys started. You guys are great. And never even like looked at Jason all and said like, oh, you're on Brainstorm Brewery. Just nothing. And Jason wore a Brainstorm Brewery <laughs> merchandise the entire weekend so that you would know he was on Brainstorm Brewery too. Um but thanks. Uh, I think I said hi to like 20 or 30 people. Um, we had one listener stand next to me at the blackjack table and wait for the shoe to be over and then like tap me on the shoulder and say, I'm a fan. That was interesting. Uh, you should have helped me with that shoe more, but, uh, but things happen. Um, um, it was fun. Vegas was uh, kind of small, right? It was like 2,800 for the main event for one of them. Yeah. So that, if you weren't there, it seemed like there weren't many people playing in the main events. And that's because there weren't, there were thousands, like hundreds, probably thousands of people that just didn't play in the main and just hung out all weekend. They had a whole section dedicated to people that were cube drafting. Uh, we did the, the yearly MTG finance cube draft with uh, Jason, all Douglas Johnson, all those guys, a couple of the cartel listeners too joined in. Um, and it was really nice. They had space for hundreds and and at one point thousands of people to just play for fun. And that was the correct way to do Vegas, in my opinion. Uh, we, yeah. got, we got four cube drafts in on the day that uh, the rounds were being delayed by an hour and a half due to software issues. And it felt really good to like get the true EV play of not having to pay $100 to the main. And then just cube drafting with a bunch of finance people. So it was nice. It is... Uh more and more clear every year that playing in the main event at those things is not a good idea unless you're like trying to hit you know 
silver or whatever. And even then it's questionable. Yeah. Um, finance wise from Vegas, I'm sure everyone figured this out already because it's on the MTG finance Facebook pages, you know, Reddit, all that stuff, uh, old school and revised BIOS was insane. You could get $700 for a Nearman underground C, uh, on a buy list, not even retail. And that vendor the next day, uh, first of all, for them to, you would have to wait two hours to even sell to them throughout the entire first day. Yeah, all right. Everybody. Did Jeremy's computer crash again? It might have crashed again. Uh, and given that he has not moved his head, I'm going to assume that his computer did crash. And it still shows us he's being live, which I believe is accurate. But didn't we have this before where the cast continues to run, but neither of us can turn it off? Uh, yes, I believe that is the case. Um, I <laughs> could log into the account that is currently broadcasting and uh, turn it off when we're done. But at the moment, I don't think that's a possibility. Oh, wait. Uh, hey, just... I'm just going on my phone because uh, my computer hates me today. Oh, you have to see two Jeremy's. Yep. If, if you're watching live, yes, there are two Jeremy's. Are there? Yeah, you're 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 in the cartel account still, and your head like you froze. So I assume uh, that you <laughs> uh, your computer exploded again. Yep. All right. So anyway, the correct play was do not play in the main. That's. Uh, I mean, that's that's, that's just true. the case with every Grand Prix. You only play in the Grand Prix if you want to experience like the highest level of magic that an average person can experience. Yeah. And good point. Or you're like, you hate yourself and you want to play like 16 hours of magic for no reward. Yeah, considering Grand Prix are all about like pretty, for most people hanging out, having fun and like getting dinner, like playing in the Grand Prix means you have to skip all of that if you're doing well. So don't put yourself through that. Maybe go out to dinner with your friends. It's, it's the best part. I agree. Yep. Uh, if I was there this year, I probably would play in like a couple of side events tops and just see people who go to shows, hang out, have fun, eat good food. That'd be my plan. And other than that, we also had M19 spoilers. Uh, they spoiled some spicy meatballs, Scapeshift, and uh, Crucible. How do you guys feel about these reprints uh, compared to, say, a supplementary product like Masters 25 that also came out this year? Uh, I feel like people are going to buy more of this than they would, like, Battle Bond, for example. So the potential price drop could be pretty big. That being said, like it really depends on how much is like value is in the rest of the set. It's really cool that they brought back all the elder dragons, but if none of them are actually like even remotely interesting in commander, then you run into this problem where like there's a bunch of cool cards, but nobody really wants them. And that's bad because then people don't buy booster boxes. If there is enough cards that people really like, then and they do buy booster boxes, then you end up with what Dominaria is, where like the top two most played standard cards take up most of the value of the set, and everything else is worth basically nothing, which is a good place to be if you're just a casual player or if you play standard, but you're cognizant of what cards you're going to want to play early on and can buy them before they get too expensive. What was the actual question? How do we feel about Battle Bond? 
how do you feel about M19 versus something like Masters 25? Because they both had what seems like so far two major reprints in each set. Um, M19 is cool. Putting Scapeshift at Mythic is curious. I can see Crucible at Mythic. That makes sense to me. Scapeshift at Mythic feels like that could have been a rare pretty easily. I guess they're doing that to kind of preserve the price so that people who own skate ships don't get totally hammered. And also because it's weird at rare and like draft, like, but there's plenty of rares that are complete do nothings to draft anyways. So I don't know, whatever. Um, it's a curious approach they're taking. I look through Morrow's discussion of it. His article today about what they're trying to do with the courses from here on out is a little bit illuminating because rather than just, sort of a hodgepodge of cards, which is what the older core sets were. It sounds like they're really specifically going to use the rares and mythic rare slots to target standard and modern um, and EDH uh, in a way that they didn't really do with the old core sets. Cause they're like, you know what? We'll make sure new world on new world orders all over common and uncommon. So uh, all of our new players who are getting into magic can use the core set as an onboarding ramp. And we're going to put the really complex stuff up at rare and mythic because the new players don't really see that as much and they get it gives them a taste of what could be out there and also gives us a chance to do some stuff for those formats that we wouldn't normally. Um, so that leads me to believe that the core sets going forward are going to have some, like you said, spicy meatballs in the rare and mythic rare slot in a way we might not have before, whether it's in the terms of reprints or cards that are very targeted for formats. We don't really have a lot to do with that at the moment, but it is telling us that for next year's core set, uh, you know, if there's any modern cards that are looking a little pricey, and you're like, I don't know if I should be holding on to these. I wouldn't want to be holding on to something like Scapeshift next year heading into M20, knowing that Wizards could just be like, this is it. This is where we're doing it. And Scapeshift was sort of previewed on Magic Online because they had already come out with a promotional copy that had this art on it. So it was something that was telegraphed by Wizards months ahead of time. So... Yeah, it's 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 important though to realize that even though there are there sometimes is MTGO art that's different than the art that exists um, because they made a promo or whatever, they don't necessarily come out with a paper copy of it very quickly. Like I believe the Sword of Feast and Famine promo has been there for like years and still hasn't been reprinted with that art. Um, you know, same thing happened with the signets. The signets, the new signets were online for like I think like two years before they got put into. Modern Masters 2017. So, yeah, it is important to be cognizant of what is on Magic Online and what promos come there since they can come out much faster. But don't, like, necessarily take that as the be-all, end-all of, like, it's 100% happening. Yeah, good point. I think Scapeshift's at Mythic, Travis, to try and preserve some of it so that people still have a chase card to open in the set. I think if this is at rare, it's like a $3 rare because the demand is definitely not as high as the supply is going to be. So by having it at Mythic, it can be maybe a $10 Mythic, which still entices players to crack packs. Yeah, I think you're probably correct. I mean, it also helps like keep it so that Mythic rares have cards that you actively want to open because we've already seen the red Mythic in this set is a 10-mana do-nothing sorcery. And I think I'd rather open like a reasonable, if not very like a less expensive, but also like playable card at Mythic. Like you don't want to put too many cards at Mythic that just aren't exciting. Yep. And Crucible is also a much needed reprint for EDH. And it's something where uh, maybe I'll pick up a foil Russian copy now that it exa it exists. So I'm did looking forward to that. They did not print. No, wasn't it? Wasn't it in 10th edition also? Yeah, but that one looked ugly. 
It's the same art. Uh, fifth down foiling is would have been way better than tenth edition. I mean, I I agree, but I just I don't think like is it that much better now than it was in tenth edition? Yeah, I think I like it more because of the hollow foil. Fair enough. So, so uh, I'll be chasing that. So if someone opens a foil Russian Crucible of Worlds, let me know. I will definitely take that. Um, Soldier Cube. It doesn't matter. I still foil Russian stuff for other decks. Oh, okay. So. Is this going to go in your uh, Duretti Commander deck? Yeah, that is exactly where it's going. So uh, we'll see what happens with uh, the price of these cards. Another thing that's interesting that we were talking about before the cast, uh, shout out to Ed, who his audio was so bad last week for people that are still listening to this podcast after that, that he decided to not grace us with his presence after shaming himself into that horrible audio. Um, Battle bond prices are already recovering. If you guys have looked at a lot of the cards, they went down real far and you're starting to see an upward demand. I think this is due to commander anthologies coming out last week. We have Jace Spellbook series that's out now. We also have M19 coming right around, around the corner. Uh, players that wanted to draft Battle Bond got their one or two drafts in since the product has been released, and now it's just going to sit on shelves for a while as prices rebound. Seedborn Muse took a massive plummet uh, down to as low as $5, and it's already back up to $7 pretty much everywhere. So you, you had your chance to get some cheaper reprints, and demand is going to start outstripping supply, especially in about two months, which is where it seems traditionally... Prices have always bottomed out, and then a steady increase for the next 18 months after that. So it's just something to be aware of as far as battle bond prices. Anything that you've been monitoring, Travis, when it comes to battle bond? If you want to unmute yourself. You know, battle bond's a little uh, newer than I typically pay attention to. Um, I think the new sets like that are... <clears throat> tend to be more valuable for people in vendor positions since you guys can kind of make use on those smaller margins a little bit better for guys like me uh it's kind of hard to time those correctly and the supply is very high um online which means that even if i can get stuff at a reasonable price like there's so much that has to get bought through uh so in general no i have not really been paying attention to battle bond i've been starting starting to find that i can look at stuff like shadows over innistrad um and maybe like Battle for Zendikar, we're sort of in the time period there where it's worth starting to look at cards in those sets and see if they're valuable. But because like that's how old it has to get before I can really care. Uh, but no, nothing from Battle Bond, not yet. Maybe that's a mistake. Uh, I've been looking at some stuff from Battle Bond mostly because I personally want to own a lot of the cards from it. So rather than, you know, wait for like two years or so before people like just want this out of their binder and, and stuff like, or even just like the end of the year, like December when you can get stuff a little bit cheaper. Um, I don't want to wait, but I also, you know, I'm not, I'm okay waiting, you know, like a couple of weeks to get my stuff. So I've been paying attention. Um, some of the things that surprised me are that the lands are still so expensive. I didn't really think they would hurt hold a $5 price tag considering they're really only playable in commander. And that's kind of it. And they're not even like particularly great in commander because they don't have a basic land type, so you can't fetch them. So I'm not really sure why they're so popular. Um, you know, like you could use Sea of the Clouds or you could use Glacial Fortress 
and I think Glacial Fortress is a little bit cheaper at this point. So I'm a little a little confused. I don't know why they're so they're so sought after. Um, but foils, especially, are cards that I'm looking to pick up now because they just don't exist. Like they're not going to exist for very long. If you want, you know, any of the newer cards, especially like if you want a Spellseeker or a Arena Rector or um, Bramble Sovereign, any of those new cards that just got printed in Najila, the Blade Blossom, all of those foils just basically don't exist, especially the Mythics. It's just going to be like Conspiracy 2 and Conspiracy 1 where they're just going to be astronomically expensive once you actually decide to go in. So rather than miss out this time like I did with my Expropriate and my Silvala, I'm just probably going to buy them this week. Like, I'm just not going to wait. And if you look at the more competitive stuff, Foil True Name hasn't budged much, and you're seeing uh, Foil Japanese True Name specifically actually selling for $1,000, which is obscene. And at that price, it might be worth just buying $1,000 worth of Japanese Tilled Battle Bond and hoping to make some money. Though we all know how bad opening foreign product can be. As in somebody actually paid for it? Yeah. $1,000 for one? Yeah. Two, two of them have sold at $1,000. Man, that can get you like two underground seas also. Nope. <laughs> uh, yeah, so it's pretty crazy. Um, on top of that, we might as well talk about uh, Jace's uh, Spellseeker, Spellseeker book Jace, whatever it's called. You cannot currently find these for MSRP. The cards look completely different than most magic cards, but every single card that you can potentially open, even a non-foil, is useful in EDH. So this is a this is a product where Wizards hit a home run as far as giving shops free money to help supplement uh, losing out business to Amazon and online stuff. Um, but if you get these in, uh, you make money selling them, and then as a player. You know the cards you're getting, essentially, and they're all good in any blue EDH deck that you're trying to play, except maybe Gifts Ungiven. Uh, This is just a very good product, and demand has been very good, so much so to the point that, based on both EV and casual demand, you can only find these for about 50% more than MSRP across the board. Um, So I've actually been sitting on these. Uh, I think they're going to appreciate pretty well. I sold a couple at uh msrp and a couple at 25 i think tcg low right now is 30 dollars, including shipping uh, but this is something that a lot of, a lot of players don't even know exists and at msrp if your ogs is selling it for that they're going to be cleaned out pretty quick so a lot of players that only come in during fnm won't have actually seen this product um, i feel like this is one of the, the sleeper uh, supplemental products of the year besides battle bond singles as once again players are going to shift their attention away from both of these things as more stuff gets to, gets announced later in the year and each lgs only got like 60 to 80 of these if they were advanced or advanced plus and that's really not that's really not that many compared to any other type of uh booster pack for players these were interesting looking and i, I didn't know what the print run was going to look like or the popularity. So I kind of stayed away from them, but it's interesting to know that they're doing that well. Yeah. And like the foil multiplier, because you do get one of the random foils. A lot of people like the foil counter spell because they don't want to pay for a Mercadium ass counter spell, for example, or the, the promo counter spells out of their price range. So this is a, this is a good budget one for players who still want to foil it out. I mean, that counter spell is also the first time that they've done that G's art in foil. 
on that counter spell. Like yep. they did the it was in the Jace versus Chandra dual deck, but it wasn't in foil previous to now. I I'm a little curious as to it came out today. When when was it released? Friday. Oh, last Friday? Oh, okay. that, yeah, recently. Okay. I thought it was yeah. had been out for a little longer than that. And you would think prices would normally go down, but prices are actually going up right now. Because it seems like a lot of people cracked them on Friday and tried to make a profit selling them on TCG, which they did. And then players were like, wait, there's not enough copies online. And then they've been ra raising the price across the board on most of these cards. Um, it's also something where you could look at arbitrage potentially uh, in Japan specifically on something like Jace Bellerin, which has been a $6 card regardless of the amount of prints that it receives, even with you getting basically a guaranteed Jace in these packs. Uh, I, this may hit like 2 to $3 in Japan. And when you are looking at your next arbitrage order, this could be a good throw-in to help uh, basically make up for the cost of shipping because you can easily trade these out at 5 to $6 if you get them for 2 to 3 and that adds up after a while. So it's just something to keep in mind. Good to know. All right, let's get into our question of the week. Uh, Jim, would you mind copy and pasting that again? Sure. So Jeremy picked the question, but it's very long, so I don't want to read it. So Jeremy I normally never pick questions, but this was a very well-written question, and I figured we deserve to address it. Uh, Brad Nydkowski from New York says, I know you guys and other podcasts have said that you should always follow conventional finance wisdom. In other words, first save up for an emergency fund, then pay off your high interest debts, then save for retirement, and finally use the rest of your funds for other investments, including magic. I recently paid off my student loans by making double and triple payments. There were times when I thought about buying something like a piece of power instead of making excess payments, but decided to play it safe. My return on investment would have been way higher if I had used the money on magic rather than on my student loans. There's a lot of hindsight here, and it could have gone either way considering magic is an unregulated market. But is it ever the right decision to go all in on magic if you truly know what you are doing and are confident in your returns? Travis, this is one you can probably answer pretty well. So uh, I'm curious why, before I do, why do you say that? Because some of us on this podcast have student loans and have to manage their debt versus how much they're spending on magic. Right. Well, uh, I will tell you that I actually think I went sort of the opposite direction of, um, of some of these guys when they talk about it. Uh, I think it's important to be wise financially, but I don't think that necessarily means being as conservative as possible. Um, you know, there's uh, the, the little adage that if you win the lottery, um, you shouldn't, you know, they have the option of the lump sum or like the 26 payments. And you shouldn't take the 26 payments, even though you end up giving getting more money over the long run because the taxes are lower. You should take the lump sum because even though you take a bigger hit on the taxes, you can do more with the money. So by the time you get to the end of that 26 payouts, uh, you've actually you have more money than you would have if you had just taken the payouts, um, which is essentially the same idea as your should I pay down my student loan or pay that minimally and invest in magic cards? Like, can you do more with your with magic cards or whatever investment um, in the, you know, relative to me paying down the student loans? Uh, and it's a reason that a lot of people who are confident 
whether or not they should be, uh, choose to pay minimums on their student loans or other loans that they have and use their money to do work for them elsewhere. So the question of should I do that is, uh, you know, if you are con, you know, if, if there is ever such a thing as a guaranteed thing, which there isn't, but you know, yes, it would make more sense to put more money into those, into those investments rather than your other loans. If you know that you'll make more, you know, you can make enough to offset not having paid the, those loans down. The tricky part is knowing when that's supposed to be done. Now you can look back right now, maybe you've done this for the last two or three years and say, uh, boy, I paid all the, you know, I paid this much money in student loans and I, I could have bought all of these cars and look how much money they'd be worth right now. Very fair. The question is, is over those period of time, are those all the cards you wanted to buy? Like the, the subset of magic cards that raised an enough price that you would have uh, outgrown or outpaced your student loan interest. Um, were those the cards that you would have bought? And were those the only cards that you would have bought? Or would you have tanked your profits by buying other stuff at the same time? Um, we tend to have a lot of rose colored glasses when we look back on stuff like this, especially when we didn't actually put our money into it. Um, so it's very easy to remember like, boy, I would have made a killing by buying all of these and ignoring what you would have also done, which would have cost you. Um, you know, I, I am fond of complaining about how I remember when Bitcoin was 25 cents and I was going to buy them and I didn't because I was unemployed and I get cranky about it. But the reality of the matter is that if I'd bought them at 25 cents, they would have hit probably a couple bucks and I would have sold them all because I was broke and it's not like I would have had them when they were 20 grand. Um, so I guess this is a very long way of saying you don't necessarily need to pay off your, I do think having an emergency fund is important. Let's be clear. You know, having some amount of money set aside to pay for emergency is important. But when it comes to like student loans and car payments or whatever, I don't think you necessarily need to uh, go as hard on those as possible when you have other ways you could be investing and making money on those investments. But it is much riskier and most people are not as good at it as they think they are which is probably the real key factor here um, is that I'm sure we have a lot of people who listen, who think they're experts at this, but you know, they're really just throwing stuff against the wall and sticks and like they, you know, they've done those studies, uh, people who do um, stockbrokers, right? They do uh, studies on stockbrokers and they found that uh, no matter how good they've done in the past, uh, it's not, a, it's not an indicator of how well they'll do in the future, both good and bad. It was just sort of, they just performed basically on average over a long enough period of time. So it's like, if you're only performing on average, like most people do, uh, over a course of time, then, you know, it was safer to do your loan. So uh, I don't know if that's helpful to you, but it kind of gives you an idea of where I am. I will tell you, I am not tripling down on my student loans. Jim. Um, I think it also depends on like your personal situation. In addition to all the things that Travis has said, you know, if your loans are at a very low interest rate and it, is a interest you know it's it's a rate that you think that you can reasonably achieve in magic by buying and selling magic cards then you know there there are there are differences uh when you have loans that are uh you know less favorable conditions so there's a there's a lot to there's a lot to you know break down and it depends on your personal situation you know i i don't pay maximum my, on my loans either because I wanted to allocate my money to other things. I'm getting married. I bought a house recently. Like these are other things that you have to, that, that my money is going towards, which are not my student loans, but are also not magic cards. If I didn't buy a house or if I wasn't getting married, would I be spending more on cards? Or would it be spending more on loans? Um, personally, I don't like having loans because I think it makes it inflexible in the future. If like for, for let's say for some reason I lost my job 
and you know I have to live without any income for a little bit or very minimal income, you know, it, it's clearly more advantageous to have paid off those loans because, you know, you can renegotiate for lower terms or whatever. But if you don't have any money because you spent all the magic cards and you have to liquidate those very quickly, you may end up taking a loss on something that could have been profitable if you just waited longer. So I don't know. It depends on your situation. I personally don't think that people are as good as they think they are at things that they do. It's just in general. Like I think everyone overestimates their competence in a lot of things. So I think it's good to be humble and to figure out whether or not this is a feasible plan for you. Uh, I think it's a safer plan to pay off your loans, just not have them hanging over your head. Um, but that's, uh, like I said, it's, it's up to you personally. So let me drop some data in the, in the chat here while I'm talking about this. Uh, I think you're looking at the past in rose-colored glasses. If you take the aggregate amount of the reserve list, uh, for our listeners, this data has been, uh, this data is based on sold listings. Uh, in 2014, the reserve list appreciated 33% from 2013, from $14,000 uh, to $18,000. Um, 2014 to 2015, it appreciated another 35%. And then in 2015 to 2016, it only appreciated 10%. 2016 to 2017, it only appreciated 9%. And as of two months ago, the reserve list had gone up 95% in the entire year on average. Obviously, this is something that's completely new to Magic, and we, no one could have predicted it based off um, the last two, two and a half years showing a not as high growth in your return. Um, I also agree with Jim that you shouldn't have any debt. You should pay that off as fast as possible. And I think one of the biggest things that we talk about on this podcast is there is always a better buy in the future. So if you may have missed this window to buy cards and sit on them for this long, there will always, always, always be a better opportunity in the future, whether it's a friend of yours saying, hey, I might still out. Are you interested in buying some of this? Or if you go to a yard sale or something like that, you're always going to find something that's a guaranteed profit in the future versus you just saying, uh, Lotus went to, I think it's $7,7500 for a slight plague copy, and it was only $3,500 four months ago. Therefore, it should be $15,000 by the end of the year and putting your money into that. I would rather have everything paid off before I started potentially spending my money and lighting it on fire because as Travis said, past results do not indicate future performance. We, you know, we don't know there's a, there, when I was at Vegas, people were selling five figures of reserveless collections to vendors and it was hundreds of people in that room. All those vendors have to be able to move those reserveless cards and they're going to undercut each other, especially in the back half of this year, as we've talked about, as they try to make back all that money that they spent, especially when you're paying $700 for a revised underground sea, they have to make that money by selling those cards, whether in real life or online. And only so many people can afford the higher prices. So prices will naturally come down after a spike once demand's been uh, satiated essentially. And I didn't take that many micro and macroeconomic classes in college. So if I'm wrong, feel free to uh, light me up on Twitter or something. Um, but you know, you, you shouldn't be sad that you paid off your student loans. You you should be happy. And then from there, you can start investing in things that you think maybe 
uh, haven't appreciated as well. I mean, going back, Travis, Jim, and I could have all bought the same things that you were thinking about, reserveless cards or a reserveless bulker that now is worth a bunch of money. And we could have been, you know, lying on a bed of gold bricks by now, but we didn't. We did other things with our money. And I don't think any of us regret, you know, owning a house in Jim's example, getting married in Travis's example, or losing my hair in my example. Uh, it's just, you know, you just deal with life and you you keep going. So in the you know now that you have money, start stockpiling that. Start looking at investment opportunities, maybe even a little arbitrage or some quote unquote guaranteed money, and go from there. But don't be salty about the past because you can't change it. Kind of drifted around a little bit. I love <laughs> rambling. Love yeah. rambling. I, I I just want to end this with one last thing. Um, if you're paying off loans, whatever the interest rate is, that's like basically a guaranteed return, right? Because that's money that you don't have to pay anymore because you paid it off. So if you are, if your loan has like an eight percent interest rate, for example, uh, and you spend a hundred dollars extra dollars towards that loan, you essentially made that eight percent on that hundred dollars. If you bought a hundred dollars worth of magic cards and you they go up fifteen percent, but it costs you ten percent to sell them, then you're not actually even really making any money. So just sometimes it's good to just take your guaranteed income or saving money, I guess, by, by paying off loans since that, unless it's a variable interest rate, will be consistent throughout the life of the loan. And that's a definite thing that you're going to make back. Whereas like, you know, making a couple of extra percent, risking it on magic cards, you have much higher chance of being at zero or negative percent after it's all said and done. But this was a very well-researched question, uh, Brad, so please message us on Facebook or Twitter to claim your gift card. And Jim, how can people win a gift card for next week? We're going to give away two next week because we actually didn't record last week. Uh, you can leave a comment on gatheringmagic.com on Tuesday, June 19th, when this episode goes up, uh, or after that, uh, until the following week when we cast live on YouTube. Anything else that you guys want to talk about before we move into pick of the week? Travis is very, very blase, it appears. I, I don't have anything else to talk about. The beta draft last night was kind of cool. I didn't expect to really watch it, but then I did, and it was cool. I called the rares. It's nice when packs weren't, the, they didn't even shuffle the packs, and like, so you knew what they were going to pull. I, I just like was really excited when they opened the seven basic land pack and the pack with one creature that was drug skeletons. Those yep. are my favorite. We actually opened a beta pack and got an island as the rare. That that thankfully did not happen because if Aaron Forsyth had to explain to Twitch chat that the rare in the pack was a basic island, I think people would have flipped out. Yeah. So I uh, did uh I was impressed. Actually I guess impressed that you uh knew the mapping yeah like, so, like, it's, like I, I look over and it's like there's going to be a plateau and a time warp but then i looked on twitter and i looked back over the other modern you're like we should see a plateau and a time warp and i'm like oh okay um yeah so actually cool stuff inc our sponsors had a revised booster box for a hundred dollars and they weren't mapping the box by searching it, but basically based off of what people were pulling out of the box, we had determined that you were going to get three dual lands in that box. 
Uh, one was going to be an underground sea, one was going to be a scrubland, and one was going to be a badlands, and all three were opened out of that box. But the packs were shuffled to ensure that you couldn't cut directly to the to the duel, and they obviously weren't letting you like search the packs. But like we knew off the first three or four rares that those duels were live in that box, essentially. And for anyone who at home that's like questioning how this happens, uh, Wizards of the Coast has uncut beta sheets that they like to post on Twitter. So if you go to Mark Rosewater's Twitter, you can see that. Uh, if you go look at the last sheet, the third sheet is the rare sheet, which is the one that has all the rares and a bunch of basic islands. If you look at the cards that were next to each other on that sheet, you can see why we assumed that those were going to be the cards that were opened in the booster box. Um, like the it's... plateau, I believe, was next to like one of the other rares that was opened semi-recently. Yeah. So the reason why it was so easy to call is because they essentially opened cards on either side of those rares. And so you knew that due to one of them... So the uh, rows and columns, yeah. So the the uh, the columns, column one and column three had already been opened, and there was a card in in um, in column two that had been opened as well, as well as well as a rare uh, a row below that being opened. So you knew that at some point they were going to finish that square of the cut rares out of there. So it was easy, it was easy to determine by then to tweet out, oh, Plateau and Time Walker are going to be pulled, and then people lose their shit when I called it because I knew which rares were coming. Um, and that's why you don't buy search beta packs. Uh, we, we actually had pulled an Ancestral Recall out of one of the other beta packs uh, from the unsearched beta collection that I had gotten in, and uh, we knew that depending on the rest of the sheet, um, uh, after shuffling the packs and selling some of them, there was a possibility that one of the rares could have been an island. But uh, basically, when we when I brought the beta pack we were going to open on site, I had everyone look at it to make sure it wasn't search because search packs are real easy to tell due to you having to press the card up against the side of the pack to see what the rare was, which in this case did not happen. Um, otherwise, I probably would have just opened that ancestral recall for myself and gotten it graded instead of selling that pack. So. Yep. So is it pick of the week time? It is pick of the week time, and I'm going to start because I made mine two minutes before we recorded this podcast live. My pick of the week is doubling season from Battle Bond. Uh, it has already started rebounding. TCG Low is now $37. Um, Japan, Haruya specifically, had these between 3,000 and 3,200 yen. On their website, I bought every single one of those copies uh, before we started recording this podcast live. Um, <laughs> having a retail out obviously makes this way easier for me to basically lose no money. But even if I were to sell these on Twitter for $35 each, plain white envelope, I'd still be making about um, $1.50 to $2 per copy, which adds up when you buy dozens and dozens of copies. So in my opinion, there's basically zero risk to us to shipping these to the place of Missouri and then selling them on Twitter. So in this example, I'm just using arbitrage, but also just looking at us listings, uh, Tokyo MTGs out, uh, T Japan's version of, um, TCG player, which I'm not going to name because, Hey, some of us still have to get some free arbitrage in, uh, the, it also looks like it's rising there. And it's, it's just a card that the demand is going to keep propelling this upwards to probably $45 in a year from now. So this is a easy money card. You should be trading into them. If you see any in people's binders, which is pretty unlikely is a lot of players would never put this in a binder. They'd put it in a deck if they got it. 
but it's just something to be aware of. So that's my pick of the week. My pick this week is uh, Shalai Voice of Plenty, I believe is the name of her name. I really like your argument behind this on Twitter. Oh, because it's an angel? Yeah. So uh, if you're, you're not aware, um, there was a new angel spoiled today in M19. Uh, I think it's called Resplendent Angel. Um, basically, it's a. It, it looks to me, it smells to me like a Chase Mythic Rare that people are going to play four of in their deck. And it synergizes very well with Lyra, but that one's also quite expensive. Now, previously, Lyra had some tech that really didn't do anything because there's not a lot of reason to play other angels in your deck because the only other one was Shalai. And um, there, I don't think there are any like non-legendary angels that are aggressively costed for a standard. But that changes now because now we have this 3-mana, uh, 3-3 three, three flying angel that you can play in all of your decks. Uh, it really benefits a lot from Shalai's ability to give it hexproof because it dies to basically all of the red uh, removal spells uh, and Glorybringer and whatnot. So I think that there are people that will try to play an angel tribal deck or at least those three angels together could form a base for a good white mid-range deck that could um, have some ability to stop uh, the red decks that are running over standard, especially if Goblin Chain Whirler gets banned, for example. So uh, right here, I think they're like $2 now, and that's purely on like commander and casual demand because I don't think those get played in standard at all. This could easily be you know, a $10 to $12 card if people really get excited about it and want to play it in their decks. So I'm excited to, to get Shalai at $2. I had been waiting actually per, to uh, to buy it because I wanted some for EDH, but I just bought some now because I don't think it's going to get cheaper in the short term. Interesting. I looked at that uh, Angel and was looking for... Um cards in standard that would give you enough life to pull off the trigger, because that's the one that's the 3 mana for 3, right? 3 mana 3 3? Yeah, it's a 3 mana 3 3 that makes a 4 4 flying vigilance whenever you gain four or 5 or more life. In a turn. In a turn. In a turn. Right, yeah. which, which you know, Lyra does by herself, um, and then this can do it if you activate its ability. Yeah, I was looking to see if there was any other payoffs, um, like, you know, a, a trigger that gained you 5 life at some point, and I'm like, oh, that would be pretty wild because then you could pull it off like regularly um and didn't see it so i i don't know like the mythic angels are like i felt like there's zero or a hundred right like they're either basically unplayable and they're just casual fodder so they're a couple bucks or they're standard defining and they're 40 uh and i i i wasn't convinced but maybe uh maybe she's got it i mean you've got the angel tribal deck um again it'll push the other ones so the other thing that's like pretty appealing about this is that because Lyra's ability is not just all your angels get plus one, plus one, they also gain lifelink. So if you have Shalai and the other angel in play, like that attack will give you enough life to make another 4-4, which I think is pretty much an insurmountable board advantage on oh. turn five. Yeah, I mean, if nobody shoots your three angels, <laughs> you're probably in pretty good shape. Um uh, I'm going to go in a different direction from these two guys, and uh, I'm looking at Priest of Yogmoth. although there are a lot of cards that could be in the slot. I've been hearing a little bit about 9394 EDH on Twitter um, from people in that community it's a little a bit. It's a blast. It is a blast. Yeah. So it seems like it's pretty cool. 
Now, is it enough that people, uh, that it's really going to do a lot to move card prices? I don't know. Um, you know, that's a tough format because now you don't need 60 of the damn things. You need a hundred, uh, which is no, no mean feat. Um, but I guess the rule is, uh, original art, original border, which means you can play like fifth edition and fourth edition of those cards. Right. If I understand that correctly. Yes. That was channel fireballs rules for Vegas specifically. However, they may be changing that in the future. No one's confirmed or denied it yet, okay. but it, as it stands right now on their website, those are the current rules. Um, okay. There's so, bickering between the groups on exactly what should be legal, but yeah, right now you can do that. And it, it seems like if you're going to try and make EDH in this realm a thing that you're going to need to kind of expand legality because now you're asking people to play with cards that are 50% bigger or decks that are 50% bigger. Um, so it's going to put a real strain on the, the supply. In any case, this may or may not be a real format. Not sure yet, but 93.94 has been way more popular than I think a lot of us would have expected. This seems to be moving in that direction. Uh so Priest of Yawgmoth is one of a bunch of cards that sort of could slot into that format that are currently dirt cheap and are, you know, the original printing. He's a two mana one, two. Um, you can sacrifice an artifact to add black mana equal to its mana cost. So I think there are probably a variety of combos you could use with him. You know, if you're playing like Lord of the Pit or any of the other gigantic old black creatures that you can cast, um, he lets you get there really fast with it, which is kind of cool. Um, so you've got a antiquities card with no other printings uh, and they're like a dollar right now, uh, under a dollar, depending on where you look. So supply is not like empty, right? We're not talking about like there's only two copies on the market, but there are not a lot. Uh, and it would not be hard to imagine this thing taking off if this ends up being a real format. Or Time even, to crush Travis. It doesn't even have to be a real format. It just has to be a format big enough to support the, the, the supply of these cards, I guess. Well, Travis, I just dug through my antiquities box behind me and I found about 80 copies. So I'm going to go crash the market real fast. They're all near mint. Go for it. It sounds like a good plan. I have one somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Old school. Again, what is the card you're talking about? The two mana one, two taps like this. artifact add uh, black to your mana pool equal to the sacked artifacts mana cost. If you need one, Jim, I have a bunch now. I don't think so. I'm just like trying to look up what this thing is. And something specifically that I forgot to mention, I feel like, is Channel Fireball is now paying minimum uh, quarters on any common from Arabian Nights that's LSP or better. So I, I think we talked about this a bit, but I had a bunch of Arabian Nights draft chaff that I sold for a quarter each, and now I regret it, but it's... Basically, there's a new standard uh, level for old bulk like that. Like we've a lot of shops will do Shadow More and back X amount of dollars per K, but Channel's basically setting a precedent at we'll pay X on Arabian Nights commons and uncommon bulk. We'll pay X on antiquities. So just keep that in mind if you guys find any, if our listeners find any while they're picking through collections. Anything else anyone wants to add before we get out of here? Uh, nope. No, I don't think so, but this set looks great. I'm ready to see the last three or last two Elder Dragons. I'm excited. Yeah, they're uh, they're good. You guys can find us on Cartel Aristocrats on Twitter. You can find us on YouTube at Cartel Aristocrats. You can find us on SoundCloud, on iTunes, at Grand Prix in Japan right now. If you're Ed who slept through this cast, be sure to 
tweet at him at edwin13 and remind him to set an alarm next time. You can uh, find the rest of us pretty much everywhere where we said at the beginning of the podcast. We'll see you guys on schedule next week. Sorry about the recording delays. Ed and I were gone for a while, but uh, we'll, we'll reel it back in and get some uh, some steady content out there for you guys. Have a good one. And as always, see you next week. Bye.